and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and this is my co-host, Gavia. Hello. So this week, we are going to be discussing one of my favorite films of all time, His Girl Friday, directed by Howard Hawks and starring Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. Uh, as we mentioned briefly in last week's episode, uh, we watched this movie together many years ago uh, on vacation, and I have seen it many times since. It is a classic romantic comedy from 1940 when Cary Grant was truly at his peak as a movie star. And it was based on a play called The Front Page that was actually recently revived on Broadway. Uh, the interesting thing about that play is that the two leads in the play are both men, and one of them was changed into a woman for this film, which leads to a lot of interesting gender dynamics that we will get into. I thought it would be interesting to talk about this this summer because uh, the great film writer and philosopher Stanley Cavill, who wrote uh, the definitive book on uh, sort of Hollywood romantic comedies of the 1930s called Pursuits of Happiness died recently. And I was very sad because I used that book extensively in my master's dissertation. And he has a great chapter on His Girl Friday in that book. Uh, I scanned that in the introduction and put it on our Patreon page if you would like to access it. This is not required reading for this episode, but I will be talking about it because I read it a lot for my master's, and I will never use it for anything practical ever again, so this is it. This is the utility value of my master's degree in Victorian literature. I, this I podcast. skimmed the parts that seemed like they were relevant to this movie. <laughs> yes, it's fine. Yeah, there's a long introduction that is sort of like in and out, and then the, the chapter on His Girl Friday is really great. Um, but basically, the thesis of the book uh, is that he proposes that there is this genre of film from the 30s and 40s uh, called The Comedy of Remarriage. He's writing this book in the 1980s. Um, and some of the films that he's talking about, including His Girl Friday, are literal comedies of remarriage. So in His Girl Friday, Cary Grant plays a newspaper editor who was once married to Rosalind Russell's character, who was a newspaper writer. She has left him. They've gotten divorced because their marriage was... Uh, not hugely functional because he's terrible because yes i mean they're both kind of nuts but he's terrible yeah. um and she comes back with her new fiance to tell him that they're getting married um and in the classic vein of this type of story the husband is a bit of a stuffed shirt yes. he's an insurance salesman but very handsome yeah and basically the point of her coming back to tell him this is so that he will woo her back she isn't really consciously aware of this, but as he points out in the book, there is no real explanation for why she comes back. It's not like she needs his signature on divorce papers or whatever. She basically just comes back and is like, I need to tell you I'm getting married. Like, she doesn't need, <laughs> need to do this. But the film then spirals out into this story of Cary Grant coming up with excuses for her to not leave and go off to get married because he doesn't want her to get married to this other man. And the main plot driver is that this guy, Earl Warren, who recently killed someone, is going to be executed. And their paper has sort of been on his side and want to get the story, you know, the real story about him. And Carrie Grant convinces her that she should stay and write this story. And many shenanigans ensue. So the idea behind this genre of film Cavill proposes in the 80s is that there are all of these movies 
in this decade, which is right sort of after the Hayes Code, the Hayes, Hayes Censorship Code gets instituted, and during the Great Depression, where you have these narratives, sometimes with a literal divorce and sometimes with sort of some other inciting incident, uh, where there is a narrative driven by similar plot developments. And I'm just going to read a paragraph, I'll read one paragraph from this book because it's easier than me attempting to just summarize what he says better than me. So his uh, description of this plot is, a running quarrel is forcing apart a pair who recognize themselves as having known one another forever, that is from the beginning, not just in the past, but in a period before there was a past, before history. This naturally presents itself as their having shared childhood together, suggesting that they are brother and sister. They have discovered their sexuality together and find themselves required to enter this realm at roughly the same time that they are required to enter the social realm, as if the sexual and the social are to legitimize one another. This is the beginning of history of an unending quarrel. The joining of the sexual and the social is called marriage. Something equivalently internal to the task of marriage causes trouble in paradise, as if marriage, which was to be a ratification, is itself in need of ratification. So marriage has its disappointment, Call this its impotence to domesticate sexuality without discouraging it, or its stupidity in the face of the riddle of intimacy, etc., etc. And the disappointment seeks a revenge, a revenge, as it were, for having made one discover one's incompleteness. Upon separation, the woman, tr woman tries a regressive tack, usually that of accepting a husband of a, a hus as a husband a simpler or mere father substitute, even one who brings along his own mother. So basically, the idea is that these two characters sort of exist as children together. Something goes wrong in the marriage. One of them goes off and finds an alternative spouse, and then they sort of can't, that can't really function. And then either they, they and then they have to learn how to live together in a different way. There are never any children in these movies because the two people have to sort of be the children together. And also kind of... I feel like that would be edging into the point where people are going to get all moralizing about it. Because like, oh, if you've divorced and you've got children, then yes. you're like, you're bad. Whereas with this, it's kind of like they're young and sexy and you right. get to have the divorce story, but you still get to like end with them getting bad together. Yes. And then there will be this kind of like education, usually the education of like the woman, although the man has to kind of learn something too. And they wind up sort of coming to a different understanding of each other. That's very much the the way that um, the Philadelphia story, which came out the same year as this film, is set up. What is fascinating about this movie, and also can be applied to other kinds of romantic comedies if you haven't seen other films from this period, is that basically the entire way it is set up is not towards people sort of learning new things about themselves and learning new things about their partner and growing towards a common mutual understanding, but Instead, realizing that actually the best way to be in a relationship and be in the world is to be completely amoral, to treat each other really not very well at all, and to have no stability in your life and no children. Which, I mean... But I think the key, like, the key point here is for them specifically and not for the rest of the world. <laughs> well, right. Exactly. It's not like the film is prescribing that. Yeah. But they're like, these two maniacs who are terrible should be stuck with each other. <laughs> right. But that's like an amazing thing for a movie so in 1940 rich. to be suggesting, right? Like when we're just going to spoil this whole film. doesn't matter. It's, it's a romance. 
like the conclusion of this movie is that Rosalind Russell, who has divorced her maniac husband and attempted to get remarried to like a perfectly nice man whom she will go have kids with and be like a housewife, which in 1940 was like a standard thing to do. Just is like, no, actually, I don't want to do that. I'm going to keep writing like crazy newspaper stories wherein we lie a bunch about murders. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. And the thing is, right, that um, there are so many movies, like more contemporary ones, that to a certain extent, like kind of try to recreate this dynamic. So not necessarily as intentionally, but it's like there were so many movies where like a a guy is trying to like break down a woman to get her to date him. And usually it's not someone who's like as energetic as Rosalind Russell. Usually it's more like, I don't know, like the shtick that they have in the Jurassic World movies where you've got like your Chris Pratt guy who's all like fun loving and cool and like then he has to like loosen up like a straight-laced woman and I'm persuade her and like every single example of that I'm kind of treating it like once she surrenders I'm like she's lost she's given into like this shit man and we have to pay attention to like garbage gender roles and I'm like no why is he like won her over and he's clearly terrible whereas in this he is very explicitly terrible he is like just lying all the way through basically like manipulating her into a position where she ends up with him but at the same time like she went there with like the subconscious purpose of getting him to do that and he's also really appealing and like the, the film does such a good job of like selling the ship like it's so immediately you're like these guys have such an entertaining dy- dynamic that you want to watch them and even though you know that they're probably going to be divorced again within five years and they're going to keep like repeating this cycle for the rest of their lives. <laughs> You're just like, it's just really good. And it's like also kind of the fast paced, like screwball dialogue. Um, It kind of has the same, I guess like the same kind of mental emotional effect as when you get like a really good fast paced action movie like the kind of classic Star Wars movie like Indiana Jones thing where it's just one disaster after another so you're like constantly not in like a stressed out adrenaline boost but like everything's really fast you're more receptive to jokes they've got like the perfect screwball dialogue where it's like their sentences are always overlapping and there's loads of wordplay but it also feels really natural but at the same time no person could ever speak like that because no one's that smart and I like I miss that so much and I think that's part of the reason why Aaron Sorkin and Gilmore Girls both have such fucking longevity even though they're like actively bad now because they are the only things that are giving us that type of dialogue which is so appealing and fun I guess like maybe the Iron Man movies because Robert Downey Jr. and um what's his name who directed Iron Man 3 are both like really good at that that's like their shtick but like Aaron Sorkin does really good walk and talk and Gilmore Girls god bless it whose revival was atrocious the dialogue works you know yeah Fast talking is fun. <laughs> yeah. So this was directed by Howard Hawks, who I think I said, who also directed Bringing Up Baby, which is considered sort of like the quintessential screwball comedy in the sense that it is also incredibly fast paced and just like zany in a way that no other comedy that I have seen for that period really is. And I it's have a seen lot sillier a lot of than this because this this movie is obviously like it is silly because you've got like a lot of um. Cary Grant doing like amazing physical comedy but Bring Up Baby has like a fucking leopard. It's also in terms of the divorce genre, like the remarriage genre, it's literally set in a divorce colony so like if you're not aware of the concept of divorce colonies, this movie is very 
very educational from that. Yeah. There was like a hundred year period in American history where like in certain states you could either get divorced there or get divorced there sharpish. So you just gently move your place of residence there like you're an out-of-state candidate and hang out there until you can legally obtain yourself a divorce. Yeah. <laughs> but I think what both Bringing Up Baby and this have in common that not a lot of other movies do, even so-called screwball movies is that fast-paced dialogue. Like, there are a lot of movies that are considered screwball, and, like, are screwball, like, that is the genre, but that I don't think live up to this level of, like, screwballness, even if there are movies that I personally love and think are great. Like, Hawks has a quality that is just so kind of outside the norms of regular human behavior. Yeah. Like, in Bringing Up Baby, they're both actually just, like, crazy people. Yeah. Like, they're nuts. <laughs> and in this, they're also kind of nuts, but in a more, less actually, like, out of their minds kind of way. Like, as you say, in that movie, like, there's a leopard and people are, like, running around after a dog and, like, Cary Grant gets covered in feathers. I mean, it's truly <laughs> out of control. Um, and in this, it's, most of the movie takes place inside one room at the criminal courts building, the press room, which you makes can, sense. You can definitely tell that it's adapted from a yes, stage play. And I feel exactly. like also in the way... I mean, I, it's been a few months since I watched it, but like at least the way it's shot, but like definitely the way they have their body language, because there's so much that like you can imagine it taking place in a stage where like they're physically like pushing and pulling each other, like either physically or like drawing the camera from side to side and that kind of thing. Yeah, but I think that that kind of energy from Hawks, which in both cases is quite amoral, in Bringing Up Baby, the question of the plot is not as tied to morality, whereas... His Girl Friday revolves around this court case in which, like, a man may be executed, which actually is a real world thing, but, like, potentially would have weight if it were actually happening, that I think is quite distinct from the other romantic comedies of the time, which are more sentimental. Like, this is completely just an anti-romance romance. Like, at one point, Cavill picks out this line, like... They're, they're hoping that no one will notice that they have Earl Warren, who is the escaped criminal, like, hidden away in this press room. And he's, he notices that the moon is out. He's like, oh, now the moon is out, because that will, like, bring light. And obviously in most romances, like, when the moon comes out, it's time for, like, a romantic moment. Not here. Not here at all. But I actually think, like, Cary Grant is my favorite actor. I've seen most of his major performances. And I think this is the one that is the most sort of base level, like, id appealing to the viewer. I'm not, I don't necessarily know it's his best. I don't know that I would pick out a best. Like, he's so good in so many things in quite different ways. But this is what I kind of think of when I think of, like, a Cary Grant role. Like, he's so unbelievably charming and he's not tethered to any bounds of normal behavior. But he's also not acting like a complete lunatic like he is in Bringing Up Baby. And so the appeal on like a sexual level is there because he's like dressed quite handsomely and is still like making jokes, but also is doing things that you're like, what the fuck? Just completely like, this absurd. Is right, and exactly. And also like the thing that's like the, the article was like pointing out he's like this trickster figure and he is because he spends the whole thing like just sort of manipulating and arranging events to his own specifications. Yes. And that could be, as you say, like quite gross. 
And I don't think in a modern context, anyone could pull it off, not because of like changing social mores, but just because I don't think there's anyone currently working. No, I mean, he's a unique talent, but also I feel like because the absurdity helps that, right? Because if they played it completely straight, you'd just be like, well, this is like a terrible man and this woman is making some bad decisions. But because like A, it's Cary Grant and like B, it's the humor just edges into like complete crackpot silliness. You're like, yeah, I'm on board. It's great. Fantastic. Keep going. (laughs) Right. And like, as you said earlier, the fact that she goes clearly with the intention on some unconscious level of provoking him. Yeah, she shows up right? and she's like, oh, would you like to meet my new husband? It's like, no, why are you in contact <laughs> right? with this man? You could very easily not be in this situation. <laughs> right. And there's something about that that um, goes back to the whole sort of idea of the book, which is that these two characters are basically functionally children together. They've known each other forever is the phrase he uses over and over in the book and all the different chapters. And what he specifically talks about in the chapter on his Girl Friday is that it's unbelievably clear watching them, which is down a lot to the performances, but is in the dialogue too, that they just enjoy each other's company so much more than anybody else. Like what's one of the interesting things about this is that there was another film that Cary Grant did uh, in 1937 that was considered sort of like the birth of like the Cary Grant sort of persona that we think of now called The Awful Truth with Irene Dunn that is also talked about in this book and is an amazing film, cannot recommend it highly enough, in which he and Irene Dunn get a divorce and then sort of take turns trying to get each other to get back together. And Ralph Bellamy, who plays the other man in this movie, also plays the other man in that film. So like, there's a joke, sort of an in-joke in this about that. and It's quite funny. But in that film, he's playing this like, oil guy from Oklahoma, I think. It's definitely Oklahoma because they sing the song. And he is just horrible. Like, he's not a bad person exactly, but he is just unappealing on every level in a hilarious way. And he's clearly, like, a terrible choice for Irene Dunn because he's awful. Like, it's, it's inconceivable that she could leave Cary Grant for this person. Whereas in this film, he is a bit of a stuffed shirt, as you say, but he's presented as, like, fundamentally, like, basically a nice yeah. person. It's just that Cary Grant comes along and you watch the two of them watch Rosalind Russell and Cary Grant interact and you're like, well, these two people could not possibly be married well, there's so to mates. anyone else. Yes. It's like, it's like not necessarily in a good way because it's like, it is interesting to see her, like literally the whole film is about her rejecting the concept of having like a traditional marriage. And like, he is nice enough that he doesn't feel like a stuffed shirt and you can imagine another movie of the same period where he would be the kind of, you know, she'd go out with like a bad boy and he'd be the Colin Firth. But like, mm-hmm. he's not the Colin Firth because in this one, you're like, you're going for Bridget Jones's Hugh Grant, but he's like, not totally a sleazeball. Because he doesn't, <laughs> right. he doesn't seem like he's, he's going to like cheat on her or anything. But he also is clearly like no respect whatsoever once he's got her back into his clutches because all he wants is like forever for them to be together and doing newspaper stories and like running around at full speed. They have in-jokes, which are, like, more obvious, but they have a lot of body language. Like, the article was mentioning that there were scenes where, like, she's sort of, like, kicking him under the table to make him shut up and stuff. And it's, like, they're so clearly in sync with each other. They know each other so well. And it's, like, there's no way that husband number two is ever going to be able to reach this level of intimacy with her when he's just like, isn't it going to be nice for us to have kids in the countryside? (laughs) Right? Like, no. 
Well, and one of the things that's so extraordinary about the Cary Grant performance, too, and we'll talk more about Rosalind Russell later because she's also really great, but it's hard not to just start talking about Cary Grant, is he literally does things like not hold the door for her and, like, let the sort of, like, swinging gate in the newsroom, like, swing shut on her. Yes. And, like, he wears his hat <laughs> in front of her and he holds up her coat for her to, like, for her to put on in the restaurant when the three of them have lunch, and then at the last moment, like, tosses it to the other guy. And it, right at the end of the film, they sort of walk out, and she's, like, carrying this big suitcase in her arms very awkwardly, and instead of offering to take it from her, he's like, well, why don't you just carry that in your hands? Like, this is, like, you're being silly. And obviously that's the kind of stuff where, in a modern context, like, I would never expect a man to hold the door open for me, right? Or, like, to take off his hat, but that's not relevant. But... At that time, clearly he's being incredibly rude. Like, it's just not how you're supposed to behave. And yet, weirdly, it seems like this is actually his way of taking her more seriously, is by not well, he bothering with any of that. Like a newspaper man. Yes. Because she's a newspaper man. <laughs> right. And it's so appealing and charming in a way that's like, how have you done this? Like, this is so amazing. Pure and I think alchemy. part of... Yeah, and I think part of that is watching it from a contemporary perspective, right? Where, like, they've sort of transcended the rules of, like, oh, you must open the door or whatever, which can be perfectly appealing in the right context, whatever. But they their relationship exists in this sort of, like, platonic place, which is incredibly dysfunctional, but it doesn't abide by any of these societal rules, which were so important at the time, and now, like, not that we don't have any societal rules about gender, obviously, but they're not as codified. I mean, she faces less workplace sexism than most female characters in contemporary dramas. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's, well, this is the thing. It's like, And I don't think it's purely because, like, they did the good old switcheroo and just gave her the man's part. Because ordinarily, no. subconscious shit, like, comes through. Because I, I'm sure there are movies where, like, they've done something similar. They've just, like, kind of fucking saddled the female lead with sexist nonsense because it just like emerges from the ether and in this it's like they haven't she's just palling around with all the other journalists in the newsroom and running around and everyone's like oh she's a newspaper man through and through she's never gonna go and get married now is she you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and it's also not played as though she is just completely one of the guys right i mean she is but there's there's a tone that they use with her like she's kind of the special one, which she yeah. is, like she's unusual, but they all clearly love her. Like she is this sort of like unique person in their ranks, but not so much that they're going to give her special treatment in terms of like getting a scoop or Yeah, she's very whatever. charming, but she's also like annoying enough that everyone's like, oh, okay. <laughs> but it's funny, like he talks about the kind of darkness of the movie which is very much there because it revolves around this murder. But what's so fascinating about watching it is that he's totally right that the thing that gives them so much pleasure is like reporting on this murder. And the guy escapes, as I mentioned, and then they literally wind up trapping him inside of a desk in this office. Like it's preposterous. And clearly have no genuine concern for you know his fate like that's yeah not i mean it's a very them, it's right? a very specific depiction of sort of 
newspaper reporting where like they're not especially like ethical journalists they really want a scoop which is like a very classic 1930s 40s kind of depiction of journalism but they're just there for like the thrill of the chase yes and then the city government is also presented as being very corrupt because the mayor, incredibly corrupt right the mayor gets a letter from the governor basically saying like don't execute this guy he clearly was insane which is the plea they're trying to make and he says no you know this never happened like we're going to execute him anyway so it's not like they're good either like the whole system is just you know a mess on all sides but you watch it and especially as, like, a career-minded woman, it's like, this is the dream, man. Like, <laughs> it is, like... And also, like, it's, like, also watching it, you're just like, why have they... Or, I mean, you're not like this, but I am, like, why have they fucking, like, hamstrung Lois Lane? Like, in Superman movies. Because, like, Lois Lane is this. You know, obviously there's been, like, a million iterations of Lois Lane, but, like, in the good versions, she is a fast-paced, like, newspaper reporter. Like, in the really old comics... She's, like, actually kind of, like, a dominatrix bitch, which is hilarious. Because, like, the guy who was writing Superman at that point clearly was, like, I'm into this. So he's always, like, <laughs> stomping on Clark Kent and, like, calling him a worm and stuff. And it's, like, steady on. But, like, in the movies, the good ones, she's always full-on Rosalind Rustling. And it's, like, in the, like, the 1970s ones that everyone loves, she's, like, obsessed with getting the story but can't spell. Which is, like, an amazing combination because it shows, like, a real understanding of the type of personality that wants to be that kind of journalist without being disrespectful. And I'm like, why are you just making her, making Amy Adams be like a girl? She's literally just like, oh, well, she, you can tell she's smart. She worked out he's Superman. And it's like, no, this is all. <laughs> Give her some fun, for God's sake. <laughs> Hand over Superman 3 to a fucking screwball comedy writer and just, I mean, they never will. No. But Sadly. Amy Adams, wasted. <laughs> she should do a comedy like this. After after she's cried a bunch on Sharp Objects. Yeah, I've not been watching Sharp Objects. Is... But really, yeah, I think she's going to do, like, Enchanted too. so... Yes, there you She'll go. She'll have a nice, wee, a nice wee turnaround after that one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I've never seen Rosalind Russell in anything else, amazingly. She didn't have as... I mean, have, she you was, seen, have you not seen The Women? I've never seen The Women. Because really that would actually to. fit in with our topic today, because that is, yeah. like, it's this, so it's this movie that's based on a stage play where the concept is that every single character in it is a woman, so there's a cast of about 100, and even the animals in it, like the pets, are women, and it was, like, one of the biggest, kind of, casts people saw on Broadway, and it was inspired by the writer overhearing conversations in the powder room, so it's this very, very dialogue-heavy story that has about five different, kind of, character plot strands, but, kind of, the main one is a divorce comedy drama, which, spoiler alert, does end up with her getting back to her husband. But unlike this, you're like, just divorce him. (laughs) (laughs) But but like legally they can't, they've got to, like they can't have it anyway. So they've got to have a story that like tackles divorce realistically. But then at the end it's like, well, obviously we're not allowed to actually show divorce on screen. So she's going to get back together with him because that's the thing for moral women to do. (laughs) It's like, no. Oh yeah, it's hard. I'm trying to think of films. Well, it's kind of like, even now, Movies where someone has the ability, someone has the option of having an abortion, they never have an abortion. There's like, like that. There's like obvious child. I was going like to say it's like where someone has an abortion. Yeah. When in reality, everyone fucking has an abortion. Right. <laughs> if they have an abortion, they die. So yeah. <laughs> that's the only way that ends. It's like a period thing, and then you die, or you. It doesn't get discussed. 
And I saw a stat today saying that now the the we're now at the highest point in America for people being like, yeah, we love Roe v. Wade. It's like seventy percent of people are like, yeah, let people have abortions. And it's like, well, you know, maybe if you talked about it a bit more. But but I digress. <laughs> well, what's interesting about that is that we have no production code. No, no, this is completely self-imposed because like even in like, because like I just remember when Judo coming out, it's like, it's not like I'm like, oh, you shouldn't make this movie or whatever. But I just remember being like, just the concept of her having an abortion was just like practically like not there as I recall. And I was just like, so weird. Like, it's so weird to watch that as a teenager and be like, even though I know that like things are different in the UK than they are in the US, like the concept of having an abortion would definitely be like the top level here. Your parents would be like fucking pressuring you. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, we don't we don't need to talk about Juno extensively today, but I did not care for that film when I saw it, and I don't think I would care for it now. And basically, my issues were she would have an abortion, and basically, no one at her school reacts in any way to this. And I was like, teenagers are bitches, and everyone would be like, I'm not talking to you anymore. Like, that's the sad thing. Yeah, they'd all be like, you're a whore. Right. And no one reacts. It's like, no. But we don't deal with reality on these issues. The important thing that everyone needs to know is that you should just watch Ellen Page's movie Whip It. Yes, much better. Which is literally flawless, apart from the one minor aspect, which is that it should be lesbians. You're correct. But sadly, that and Bend It Like Beckham were both done the dirty by Hollywood standards. Mm-hmm. But um, that's our version of the code. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the movies that are clearly meant to be lesbians are like, no, you know, Kira Knightley and Parminda Nakra are just pals. <laughs> Gal pals. Yeah. Gal pals. Um, moving back to the actual yes. production code. And the period in which this film was made. One of the other things that's really interesting about it, comparing it to the other films that were coming out at the time, is that it is basically not about class in any way, mm. which is totally fascinating to me because as someone who, again, has seen many, many, many films of this type from this time, that is the sort of central running theme through do, all of do them. Do we see where they live? Do we see their houses at all? No. Yeah. Which makes sense because it's a play, right? So you can't yeah, no, be of jumping Because you don't right? have the extras. But it's like you really, there's no kind of class markers, but like they both come across... As, well, I mean, their costumes are rich, right? Like, Rosalind Russell has all these Hollywood costumes, which are, like, clearly created for the movie and are super, like... They're not, like, glamorous, but they're very distinctive. Like, I fucking love yes. her costumes in this. And obviously, Cary Grant looks amazing and is wearing fetched suits and all of it, because it's Cary Grant. But also, they're working in this really clearly, like, dirty newsroom. I don't think they're getting paid very much. And the implication is that, like, he maybe has more money... But he describes her as, like, having grown up as a hick, so she probably wasn't, like, born rich. No. So they just, they've just decided to hand-wave the concept of money, which is very kind of de-stressing if you're, well, like, just coming out of the Depression. It's interesting because uh, Bruce, the other man, is constantly sort of being stiffed money. This is one of the yeah. ways that Carrie And also Grant... his whole job is about, because their job is about love, because they're just passionate about being journalists and his yes. job is about being an insurance salesman, which means you <laughs> have a responsible amount of money with which to raise a family. Yes. And one of the ways that, the main way that Cary Grant gets Rosalind Russell back on this story is that he says he's going to take out a huge insurance policy uh, on his life from Bruce to, and that if she does this, that she'll go and do this interview with this criminal. And 
it, I think the commission is like $2,500, which obviously in 1940 money is like a huge amount of money. And, but for many romantic comedy protagonists of that time, that would not be a big deal. And also would not even be mentioned, like the sum would not be talked about. Yes, and you can tell that delicate. he's like, that's a lot of money, but he pays anyway. And then he also plants counterfeit money <laughs> on Bruce because Rosalind Russell has used all of their money that they own to pay off a source to get information for the story that she's writing. And he doesn't want to actually have to pay her back. So he pays Bruce back with counterfeit money, lands him in jail. One of the several things that Cary Grant does to land this guy in jail throughout the movie. But what a nice boy. He's so nice. But what's so interesting about this is that in so many of these other movies, basically all of them, you have at least one member of the couple who is super, super rich. So in the Philadelphia story, Catherine Hepburn is mega wealthy and so is i mean the movie's basically set in a palace yes and her ex-husband played by cary grant is also mega wealthy and then jimmy stewart is sort of like the you know working class guy he's like a journalist but whatever he's very much like you rich people and then the moral of the story is like rich people are people too which is kind of funny but it's fine and then uh something um, like holiday earth cat Bryn Hepburn is also super rich and Cary Grant is not. The Lady Eve, Henry Fonda is super rich and Barbara Stanwyck is like a con woman who tries to get into like his good graces to steal his money but then falls in love with him. And like over and over and over again, you see this trope play out. Or sometimes they're just both rich and it's fine. So the awful truth, which is the one with uh, Irene Dunn, they're just unbelievably wealthy. It's never discussed what he does to make money you assume something, but like they just have these huge palatial apartments and go to like fancy clubs and have a house in Connecticut. There's always a house in Connecticut. Connecticut is like the dream world of these films. Um, It's fine, right? I mean, it feels really representative of the kind of early Hollywood star magazines. Like if you've ever read articles or coverage from kind of classic Hollywood magazines, they're all like virtually fan fiction there'll just yeah. be these like huge spreads where you like go inside Cary Grant's house and there's a photo of like him looking handsome posing next to a chair or something and then like all the interview will just be like this absolute fluff and it's just this completely different genre that like doesn't exist anymore because now obviously like celebrity gossip is still trashy but like it's much more either factually based or it feels factually based whereas like at that point Hollywood was such a myth and the concept of being rich was such a myth that it was just this whole other world that could be completely fictionalized. Well right and so what with the exception of the sort of occasional movie where everyone is just rich and no one has to worry about it, you have this fantasy of being the poor person who gets to marry up into this moneyed class. It's almost always a woman who's marrying up by marrying the man. The man being poorer and marrying up into the rich social class is very anxiety-producing. That is not... Nobody likes that one very much. It does occasionally happen, but it... No, he's got to prove his worth through work. Exactly. But in this film, Cary Grant's money comes as a result of his power as the editor of the paper, right? Like, that's where the money is coming from. That's all of his power is tied up in his job. Rosalind Russell, like you say, has these amazing costumes, but it's clear that that's just, like, because she's in a movie. And she also doesn't appear to care very much about 
her appearance. Like, she tosses her hat off in the newsroom and, like, it gets, like, crushed. Yeah, it's like, it's like she's got, she's she's had the costumes made, but she's not persnickety enough to be, like, that bothered once they're on. Right. And then they're in this, like, quite grimy environment with these people doing quite grimy things. And yeah, all the other new supermen look really scruffy. <laughs> yeah, and then they, like, Cary Grant in particular is committing all kinds of petty crimes and never gets in trouble for any of them. It's totally fine. She's not exactly committing any crimes, but she's very adjacent to all kinds of I mean, she bribes a witness. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, like... You know, you know. <laughs> um... But uh, it's just so completely a different world than all of these other kind of glam Mm. films. And yet, because their star power is so intense and because the chemistry they have is so intense, like, she also obviously, as you say, like, looks great and is really charismatic, but I think primarily this comes from Cary Grant just being, like, such a movie star and having these, like, perfectly fitted suits that it feels glamorous. But also, I feel like at this point in history, the concept of having a fun job was not widely regarded yes. as realistic. Because, like, mm-hmm. the fun job is being rich. So if you're rich, you get to have fun. And otherwise, everyone yes. just has a job, which is, you know, it's your job. And I guess, yep. like, in terms of cinema, by the time you get to the early days of TV, you start having legal dramas, because that's a job that you can show that someone's doing something morally great, but also do a lot of fun speeches. But societally speaking, I guess I can understand the appeal of newspaper reporter. And that is something you see in like, you know, you get detective novels and you get like newspaper reporter comics. Well, and there were, I mean... And also like loads of newspaper reporters become novelists, so... (laughs) Yeah, and so many of the movies from this time featured newspaper reporting and journalism and whatever in some capacity, which Mm. makes sense because unlike now, haha, like newspapers were the stuff of life like everyone read the newspaper every day because that was the way you knew what was happening and they employed huge numbers of people so like not everyone got to do the like fun sexy job of sitting in the courthouse uh, writing about murders but it was it was a huge part of like industry in america um and the there clearly was a romance to that too, like the romance of the free press, right? To the extent that they're, this movie literally begins with a cue card, being like, this takes place in the past when uh, reporters were bad and they don't do that anymore. It's fine because like, lest we, you know, malign the brave men and women of the press, which is just like so hysterical. But... Like, yeah, there clearly is this romance about getting to do something exciting and also there aren't really any rules. Like, you can commit petty crimes if you want and no one will stop you and you can kind of write whatever the fuck you want and no one will stop you. Like, they aren't just making shit up totally. Like, they're basically working in the realm of fact. But when she goes in and does her interview with this guy who's committed the murder, she's trying to prove that he was insane. Like, she goes in with that objective. And basically just concocts bullshit. It's fully just I have to wonder, like, how that plays out in the stage play now. Because, like, the central crime is definitely to modernise rather dodge. Because, like, what happens is the, the the guy who's the murderer 
kills a black police officer and like everyone is on, on the side of the murderer they're like well you know he's just being like caught in this witch hunt for political reasons and like she's like trying to make sure that he's clearly like marked as insane and stuff and you're like yeah <laughs> but this is the thing about the movie right it's like you're the guy you're not supposed to like think the guy's a monster for sure yeah but it's also not exactly making him out to be like the sympathetic blind man. No, it's more no. like the paper has decided to take a side on this because it's in their interest to have a position. And like every other choice right? made by these two people, it's like completely amoral. But, right. Yeah. And so, I mean, there is definitely a line where like the mayor, the mayor, like their argument is that the mayor has decided that the guy has to be executed because the colored vote, as they say, is really important in the town and he wants them to vote for him in the upcoming election, which is next week. So, I mean, they say that and you're like, hmm, but it's not presented in any way as a moral crusade by these people to, like, save this man's life. It's literally just, like, we want the story about this guy. Stick him in a disc. (laughs) like, I don't think that you care about this one way or the other. I was amused, however, watching it this time to learn that the reason he goes off the rails and, like, randomly shoots somebody, they claim is that he, he was a bookkeeper who lost his job of 12 years and then had no money. And I was like, I'm glad to see bookkeepers, my real life profession, represented on film in this way. <laughs> the last time I saw one was in The Thin Man and the bookkeeper in that also commits crimes. Yeah, I feel and like I the like, only time great. I hear about bookkeepers is when they're like cooking the books for a gangster. Yes. So that could be your next job. Correct. In The Thin Man, that's what he's doing. is He's cooking the books for himself. In this one... No, no book cooking. He's just straight up shooting a guy. It's like, wow, okay. Like, <laughs> but I was pretty amused by that. I was like, oh, you, he doesn't really look like that's what he's doing, but that's fine. It's all fine. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else we should discuss about this perfect film. Did any of it resonate with you? As a female journalist, Gavia? <laughs> um... No. <laughs> I mean, I would say that Rosalind Russell, in terms of appearance, is probably the closest I have ever and will ever see on film to something I personally both look like in reality and want yes. to look like. In that we have, um, I, I have a handful of very distinctive fashion styles that I pull out depending on the occasion. Rosalind Russell in this is one of them. <laughs> Most of these fashion styles are not depicted in conventional media, <laughs> unfortunately. Um... But yeah, love her. Um, yeah, there was like, she's definitely far, far more appealing to me than the majority of female journalist characters, right? Because movies and TV love to have a female journalist character, but they're invariably like, you know, they'll get embroiled in some really serious drama and like sleep with a source, which is like almost universal and it's never fun. And I want to just have like the Lois Lane fun thing. Or have yeah. it just be... Because, like, I guess there, there's, like, different kinds of journalists, right? Because, like, the Lois Lane, Rosalind Russell type is someone who's, like, a reporter. And they're all like, I've got to chase the story, which is, like, a really fun kind of movie to do. But, like, the type of journalist I am is, like, not that at all, because I do not have the killer instinct. I'm not a reporter <laughs> in the slightest. I'm like, if I source something, I'm like, better check three times to make sure I didn't get it wrong. Like, no fucking happening. But it's like, I'm, like, basically the, like, Carrie Bradshaw, right? I write, like, fucking columns or, like, writing, you know, film reviews. And 
the only like depictions you see of that are like absolute nonsense because it's only used as like a fake job when you need like yes. women to have a job in the city. So it's like always incredibly aggravating. Like I was talking about Gilmore Girls earlier. Like every like millennial woman journalist I know who watched Gilmore Girls, the revival was like, I hate this. Because like the whole concept of it is after Gilmore Girls, she's now in her late 20s and she's nominally trying to make it as a writer. And she wrote like one really acclaimed feature article like five fucking years ago or something. And like she spends the whole thing trying to find like that one really great idea for a story so she can write like another great story. And she has like, she's not doing anything. She's clearly just been living off her trust fund for years. And at the end, she realizes that what she should really be writing is like a memoir about her experiences. Because the thing that's really interesting about her is that she's like self-absorbed and it's all her own relationships. And it's just like, this is terrible. Like, not only is it not like the way the character was in the show, which is like, she was a bit of a Hermione, which is like not the same. But it's also like, this is just like the idea of being like a millennial journalist in New York and being like, yes, I've written one piece in five years. And it's like, no. I know plenty of people who are not professional writers who have published that much. Like, <laughs> that's yeah, that's not good. No, terrible. I mean, I think what's so nice about this film is that obviously so much of Rosalind Russell's relationship to journalism is tied up in Cary Grant, right? Like they're inseparable. But yeah. also, but she enjoys it. She so just much. loves her job. You can tell how much she absolutely loves her job, and she's so good at it. Like they read out, like the other guys in the press room read out one of the article she's writing at some point when she's out of the room, and like it's so good in this like cheesy, hackneyed, like perfectly exploitative <laughs> way. Like it's awesome. And the thing at the end that finally like drives the other guy away is that they've got this big scoop. And she's, like, writing it frantically to make Deadline. And Cary Grant is on the phone with, like, another editor at the paper, sort of, like, telling him how to rearrange the front page. And they're both, like, sort of shouting things back and forth at each other, but simultaneously completely absorbed in their own task. And it's, like, you rarely see people working in that way on film. Like, it's really hard to depict. And... Like, it basically sums up the movie is that they're both working so, in such a focused way, but also completely in sync with each other. And then poor Ralph Bellamy is just standing there like, what's going on? He's just on? like, do like, I go back to Albany now? It's right, like, like, yeah, I don't feel like you have another option at this right, point. Right, like, you need not to leave. listening to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and as someone who, like, loves working, it's it's very much just like, oh, this is nice. Like... This is, I I appreciate this. I feel seen. An inspirational film. Very aspirational. Be a moral. Work a lot. And uh, Mary <laughs> Cary Grant. There you go. The the solution to all problems. Um, yeah, watch this movie. It's very good. And then uh, come talk to me about it and other romantic comedies of the 30s and 40s. There are many good ones, and I would be happy to give you recommendations. Uh, so next week... We will be discussing the new Mission Impossible movie. To my surprise, as much as anyone's, um, I was not planning on seeing this film. Yeah, I didn't see either. The... It's getting fucking rave reviews. And right. We like, we have to see this film? Like, it's Mission Impossible 6, but apparently it's brilliant. <laughs> I saw, I believe it was the last one, uh, Ghost Protocol. And yeah, it was, it was, it was really good. Like, it yeah, got it was, very good views at the time. It was fun. I liked it. I don't remember it, but I remember 
enjoying it very much. And I think the only other one I've seen was three on a plane many years ago, which I also I mean, they are the kind of movie you watch in a plane. It's a quintessential plane movie. But the reviews for this are just insane. Like, the Village Voice review by Bill Beery, I have not read because I tend not to read reviews before Mm. I've seen a film. But the headline is just, this movie is sex. And I was like, excuse me? (laughs) Like, what? And that has been the tenor of the coverage. So The phrase, the best action movie since Fury Road, has been bandied around by reputable sources. And I was like, okay. So, makes me feel bad for a Tom Cruise's Top Gun sequel, because there's no fucking way that's going to be good. Yep. Um, but also not bad, because that stars Miles Teller, and I don't want Miles Teller to be happy. Oh yeah, fuck So, fucking. you know, whatever. But yeah, we're going to watch that. I mean, I'm curious. Who knows? I don't care for Tom Cruise personally, but he sure can hang off a plane. So. Yeah, I mean, he's good at he's good at that. Yep. So we'll see. And uh, our other piece of news is that we have a book for our book club. Would you like yes. to share? So um, our Patreon people had the power to select a book for us that we will collectively all be reading. Or, you know, you don't have to read a book, but you do have to listen to our podcast because our <laughs> podcast is very important. We are going to be reading Night Watch by Terry Pratchett. My favourite Terry Pratchett book as someone who grew up with Terry Pratchett, reading them voraciously and has read every single Disco World novel. This book is incredible. I'm very happy that our listeners voted on it. We were like, sci-fi fantasy, who wants what? It was almost Octavia Butler, but no, Nightwatch. Um, to give you like a really quick intro, if you're not super familiar, Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels are satirical fantasy. So it's kind of in the realm of like D&D, Lord of the Rings. Um, they're like some of the best selling British contemporary books, very successful um, and very funny, but also like very politically astute. And they're all set in this same fantasy world called the disc world and this is one of the kind of urban fantasy ones that's about cops but like not in a sort of like authoritarian way his his books are very kind of progressive and anti-establishment but this story is kind of like about revolution starring this grizzled cop character i don't think you need to have read any of the others but if you like you can like wikipedia sam vimes who is the protagonist and try not to get any spoilers but yeah night watch we will be discussing this on an episode on august 27th um if you're following us on patreon we will also have a couple of discussion posts like posting throughout august for us to kind of talk about different points in the book as we get along this is morgan's first ever time reading terry pratchett so i'm very excited for her and i am hoping that she enjoys it because this is one of my favorite books (laughs) This is like when you watched There Will Be Blood recently for the first time, and I was like, if she doesn't like this movie, it's going to be really difficult for both of us. I mean, I think it's, it's also it. like, I, I think with mine, it's like the fact that I, we're definitely coming at it from different places, because like I'd obviously read like five Sam Vine books before this, whereas you're yes. like, who the fuck are these people? I've given her like a little pricey of the major players, but... Um, they are generally quite accessible to new readers. People just read them all out of order. Yes, I'm excited about it. I have read Good Omens, which obviously is a collaboration, but I... Yeah, was... the Discworld books are definitely better. Yeah, I, and I was like obsessed with that as a teenager, as many teenagers as, are. As so. we all were. Yeah, yeah. So I'm very excited. Uh, you can find out more at our Patreon, and we hope that you will all participate in the discussion post next month. I think it will be fun. Otherwise, you can find us at our website, overinvestedpodcast.com on Twitter at OverinvestedPod, or on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast. Thanks. Bye.